Hello, everybody. I'm Duncan Turner, and you're listening to the Vagina Doctor podcast, episode two. Today, we're talking to oncology specialist, Dr. Julie Taguti. Julie and I have been friends and colleagues for a number of years, always, it seems, talking about hormones and breast cancer. This is a great episode if you have questions and concerns regarding this, and you've been following the recent news from the Women's Health Initiative. There's a lot of false information and concerns regarding hormones and breast cancer. I think you'll get a lot out of this. Please enjoy the episode. But what do I know? I'm just a vagina doctor. Today I have Dr. Julie Taguchi with me, who has been a friend for a long time. It's a privilege to have you here with us. Thank you. And also listening in is my partner, Karen Spaulding. Um, who will be here to keep us on the straight and narrow and uh, perhaps pull us down a peg or two in terms of uh, talking thing, uh, about things in a uh, sensible, uh, understanding way for our listeners. Um, Julie, as I say, welcome. Um, you know, we, we go back before our medicine time together because I coached your son at soccer when, they were, when he was 12. I think he's 30 now, so we, we've gone back away. A um, but what pulled us together was, uh, in my uh, understanding, is that um, is when we were talking about hormone replacement therapy and with our mutual friends uh, and, and talking about the book that you co-authored, Sex, Lies, and Menopause. Um, you're board certified in internal medicine. Uh, you're by subspecialty, hematology, oncology. Um, uh, after um, uh, doing those degrees and that training, you worked at the City of Hope for a couple of years, and you've been in Santa Barbara since that time. Uh, uh, really focusing on breast cancer, and uh, the uh, association between breast cancer and hormone replacement therapy, or lack thereof. Um, the everybody that's that we invite to this um, podcast is to me remarkable in one way or another, and I would really describe you as remarkable because. You've pushed the boundaries. You've challenged the status quo. You've been the first oncologist that I know about that's even considered hormone replacement therapy in patients with breast cancer. And it's really, I, I, I don't want to be too critical of all the other oncologists in the world, but when I have approached uh, oncologists about hormone replacement therapy in uh, patients with breast cancer, um, even though I'm talking about perhaps just using it vaginally, there's very little interest. I mean, it seems to me that the oncologist is, the primary focus is keeping somebody alive. And I think sometimes the quality of life issue gets neglected. And that's, and when I can get excited about various procedures that we have for symptoms that women that are that have had breast cancer, taking you know, that are unable to take estrogen, um, or are on anti-estrogen meds, and they're miserable. And I'm trying to to help that. Um, I've found very little enthusiasm or assistance from oncologists in that. And and um, so I, I want today for our listeners to hear your opinion 
of hormone replacement therapy in various types of cancer, uh, why we, why the population and the medical population as well have been somewhat opposed or completely opposed um, without good reason. And it, um, the, the one thing that occurs to me is that in about 1900, there was a study done at one of the hospitals in London that looked at uh, the first uh, 100 patients that came through the what's called the casualty department of the hospitals there, but basically the emergency room. And they, they collected uh, the cases of 100 people who came through the front door complaining of chest pain and died. And they did autopsies on all of them. And because 98 of those 100 patients were male, it was felt and believed at that time that women didn't get heart attacks. And it's taken 100 years or so to change that thinking. And one of the things that we'll talk about today is the Women's Health Initiative study, uh, which looks at the, um, the use of hormone replacement therapy in postmenopausal women being stopped because of complications that uh, were interpreted, at least, at that point. Um, and now estrogen suddenly is the, is the bad, the bad word, the dirty word. And so, so many people just think that hormone replacement therapy of any type, whether the patient has breast cancer or not, is the wrong thing to do. And we've been struggling with that because we can really improve health and quality of life for women with the appropriate use of hormone replacement therapy. Tell me your story. When did you first start to think about challenging this issue? Or do you challenge it? Well, first of all, thank you for all the for having me here in the introduction. So, what was really interesting is I um, it was my introduction to, to to Susie Wiley that made me think mm-hmm. and made me change. So, Susie Wiley is the author, the co-author of the book Sex, Lies, and Menopause, and she lived in Santa Barbara. Yes. And one day she showed up in my office um, with a stack of papers on how progesterone can cure cancer. And she wanted me to know that my patient, who was a 90-year-old man from um, Louisiana, who had cardiomyopathy, neuropathy, you know, he had every opathy that we could list. And he, I knew he was my patient. I mean, as my patient, I knew he also had transitional cell cancer of the ureteral, um, ureteral lining. And he had come to California to live with his daughter. And when I saw him, he had his second relapse of metastatic disease and he didn't want any more treatment or chemotherapy and he had lung mets as part of that and so we put him on hospice and and I would every month I'd have to go check on him and all that kind of stuff but Susie Wiley came to my office and said I just want you to know I put your patient on a boatload of progesterone and I'm like uh what uh what (laughs) and this is a man uh, on progesterone and so she said, yeah, it kills cancer cells. And I said, okay. And let's throw, throw in the fact here that Susie is an anthropologist, correct? She's not a physician. She has no, yeah, she has no medical background. No medical background. But she's she had, just brilliant. She's just brilliant. But she had done yeah. research. She had done mm-hmm. clinical. Yeah. She had done uh, bench research. So, yeah. um, and she had published before I met her. So um, anyway, so she, she says, 
she presents this and I go, well, my patient happened to be a physician. So I said, this is, he can write for his own progesterone. I will support that. He's on hospice. Whatever he feels comfortable, I will support. And literally like nine months later, he was still alive. We got a chest X-ray and the chest X-ray was clear. Wow. Yeah. That was the wow. That was a wow moment for me. Yeah. So I said, okay, what happened? And then I went to talk to my oncology colleagues. They go, oh, he probably had prostate cancer. Oh, he probably, you know, this, that, all these answers that didn't make any sense. Yeah. And so that's when I started really being interested in the research for the hormones. And then I started uh, studying compounded hormones and I studied the rhythm of hormones. Now I'm along at the same time, I was an oncologist or I am an oncologist and, um, one of the things that, um, you know, this just the standard of care is that all women who have estrogen receptor positive breast cancer will be recommended to have an anti-estrogen therapy for anywhere from five to 10 years, no matter what their risk is. And, um, that's, it'll be everybody all the time. Okay. Yeah. Even if yeah. you're 90 years old, I'm kidding. I just had a 90 year old who mm-hmm. was just told to be on anti-estrogen therapies for a grade for a stage two lobular had a mastectomy and she's like 90, excuse me, she's 93, 93. Wow. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, please don't take anything. And she's not, but right. I have a relationship with her. So, um, but I had all these patients in my clinic who were, you know, breast cancer. They're on, on either tamoxifen or some AI. Mm-hmm. And of course those drugs are, they're basically, we castrate women. Yes. We castrate them. And when I, when I say it like that, people go, what? Yes. Right. That's what we're doing. We're castrating. We're uh, shutting down the estrogen, either the production or the um, the body's ability to see it. And so, um, women when they have when they don't have hormones, they have a lot of other effects. Of you know, right? They can have the brain fog. You, they can't sleep at night. They get depressed. Um, they have vaginal dryness. They have you know their skin itches. They they're not potentially not very happy people. And a lot of women in my practice were single and they were having hard times working and all this kind of stuff. And they would say, you know what, why, I, why do I feel so terrible? Why is it like this? I said, oh, well, you're depressed from the medication or you have osteoporosis from the medication. You have, you're not sleeping because of the tamoxifen or AI. And we have drugs for that. We have drugs to help counter all of that mm-hmm. stuff. And then people would go, you know what, I don't, I don't want that. Right. And they were making personal choices. Like, you know what, I, why am I like that? And it's because you don't. I said, it's because you don't have your estrogen. And they go, well, I want my estrogen back. And then we're back to, well, the standard of care dictates that we right. need to castrate you for five years. Yeah. And um, and they're like going, oh, I don't want to even live like this. I don't right. want to live like this. Right. What's the point? And that's where the another aha moment for me was, mm-hmm. you know, um, why sh- shouldn't these women have a say-so, whether they take the, take the, um, the medication and... What about taking hormone replacement? You know, there's one thing to stop the medication, but then there's the next step going, well, now I want my hormones back. I yeah. want them back. Yeah. And I said, well, they're not going to be back in the way that they were when you first started the medication. And, but, you know, hormone replacement could do that. And mm-hmm. that's where we started. I started having the conversations with the women for quality of life. I can, you know, <clears throat> I will support you for quality of life because I can't judge right. that for right. you. Um, but uh, you have to understand what the risks are by not taking the drugs and if you take the drugs, what could happen? So I would walk women through these different scenarios. Something like informed consent. <laughs> Major simple. informed consent. And if they wanted to take that responsibility, if they took the responsibility, because I put it on them. Yeah. You're making the decision to take hormone replacement. And I said, I would support you. 
as long as you hear me out and I will support you on that. And that's what happened. I started giving women the hormones back. Their lives changed drastically, like night and day. And um, people were like in bed with severe arthritis and depression to being ballroom dancers and competing in the next year. So, I mean, really drastic. Yeah. So it was exciting to see that. And um, they had a life. Yeah. And then other women started to have, they could, they were dating, they were having sex because they felt yeah. the desire. Right. So it changed people's lives. I, my first connection with Susie was almost the same way that she came knocking on the door with a wad of papers under her arm. And um, I, at the time, had just been diagnosed with prostate cancer. And she was, I was looking at, in the traditional way at surgery. And I mean, being a surgeon, I, that's kind of what you do. You know, it's one, you just have to do it if that's, <laughs> that's the way to do it. Um, but she came up with this idea, well, really, you know, we, we don't want men with prostate cancer to, or we're told that men with prostate cancer can't take testosterone, but why not? And, um, why are we saying that, uh, that testosterone causes this when young men who have way more testosterone than 60, 70, 80 year old guys, but it's the 60, 70, 80 year olds that are getting prostate cancer, um, and so she started talking to me about that. So that's that's what opened my eyes to it and how we communicated. But then it was getting in touch with a compounding pharmacy that was making bioidentical hormone preparations, which made this available. And the, the rhythm that Susie was suggesting of what was uh, uh, termed the Wiley Protocol, um, which I want to talk about in a moment, but... Um, it was that that made that got me interested in it. Uh, add to that that my patients being in practice at that time for a little over twenty years in Santa Barbara, you know, two thousand two is twenty four years or so. Um, uh, my the patients I delivered were now uh, the patients whose babies I delivered were now perimenopausal and menopausal and were needing treatment and I needed more information about it. And that's why I latched on to you because it was um, to have somebody of your intellect and experience and knowledge there supporting what a few of us around the country were doing, uh, now lots, but still not the majority, um, it was was really helpful. So, so I have Susie to thank for that, for, mm -hmm. for sure. Um, Wait, I want to say something. Yeah. Let's just go in briefly to the Wiley Protocol, because I'm sure maybe some of our listeners are Googling Wiley Protocol right now. <laughs> so yeah. let's explain that. What is that? Um, Julie was very much involved with the development of that, but I, I could put, not the development. Okay. So I should maybe more accurate say you were aware of what Susie was suggesting. And, and, it, and it sort of made sense. In lots of ways, that Julie, that um, Susie Wiley, um, the co-author of the book, uh, was looking at women in their um, reproductive years as being at their strongest, at, in terms of fighting infection, fighting uh, cancer, um, just at their healthiest. So, if she could put those women back into the hormonal rhythm of a menstrual cycle 
that must be better for them. Is that an oversimplification? It's 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 a good it's good it's good it's good. Okay. She wanted to when women are healthiest and their optimal or their optimal health is in their mm-hmm. like twenties thirties. Yeah. When they're reproductive. Right. And when we replace hormones, by the way, let me start over again. We are, she took that model. Postmenopausal women don't have hormones, right? right. It's very dribbling, right. mm-hmm. if any. So there's nothing. So that's the natural, normal state. Yeah. When we replace hormones in general, like if we did insulin or thyroid hormone, we don't just give them a little bit and let them go on. We actually measure levels. We want it to be therapeutic and you know physiologic. Mm-hmm. And so for all hormones, yeah. right? Yeah. So why not the same for estrogen and progesterone and testosterone? So that was why that was her thinking. Yes. She's like, why why shouldn't they be replaced in the way they were meant to be replaced? Right. And so I and of course I had no hormone replacement therapy background when I met her. And I was like, well, of course that makes total sense. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. So anyway, and I went with that. And yeah. um anyway. One of the things that uh, one of the few things that patients didn't like about the Wiley protocol was that if you did it the way that Susie wanted you to take it, it would be a full-blown period every month. And a lot of patients didn't want to do that again. That's correct. But that when you were optimal, healthy, and reproductive, you had a <laughs> yeah. full-blown period. Right. So that's right. the trade-off. So, um, and I don't know what's happened to Susie. Oh, Since I just saw Susie- her. Oh, you did? Yeah, she was just here in Santa Barbara. Last oh, wow. Week. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, obviously we both had um, <laughs> significant uh, connection with her. But let's um, let's go into the, the whole um, the evaluation of the Women's Health Initiative study. Explain for our listeners what that was, why it was stopped, and why so many parts of it being stopped, or so many reasons... Uh, were incorrect or the misinterpreted. Okay, so the Women's Health Initiative, everybody should know that term by now, I hope. Um, it was a study that was started in the 90s, and it was a um, prevention study, prevention uh, hormone replacement to see if it helps prevent like cardiovascular disease was right. the main mm-hmm. focus. So they had two different studies. One was uh, women who had a uterus, they were... Um, given they were randomized, right? The computer made the choice whether they received hormone replacement therapy, which was with Prempro, a drug, which is a combination of Premarin, which is the pregnant mare's urine, and- um, An estrogen. Which is an estrogen, thank you, mm-hmm. and then medroxyprogesterone acetate, which is a progestin. It's a drug mm-hmm. with hormone effects, but it's not a hormone. Um, and then- Versus the placebo. And in that study, there were like 8,000 8, plus women in each arm. And if you, if a woman didn't have a uterus, then she was randomized to um, Premarin alone, estrogen alone, or uh, placebo. And there were about 5,000 um, in that study. Total, that, the whole group was at 17,000 women. So it's a big study. The, and, and it was really great to have that many numbers because it really gave us some good data it maybe led us in the wrong direction for a while, but it, it gave good data mm-hmm. for us. So, um, and of course, the women entered in the study were ages fifty to seventy-nine. So they started hormone replacement at that. Um, right. There were some women who were on it previously, but uh, maybe beforehand, and there was a washout. But um, it was like less than twenty-five percent of those women. Yeah. 
Um, so they were trying to look for cardiovascular benefit, um, but they also associate at that time in the nineties were associating hormone replacement therapy with breast cancer as the biggest signal of an adverse event. And so what happened um, about five and a half years into the women's health initiative, they got a, a safety signal on breast cancer. So the women in, who had a uterus who were in the prem pro or the estrogen progestin group had um, more breast cancers diagnosed within that um, first five years compared to the placebo. And because that was the biggest safety signal, they stopped the study three years early. Mm-hmm. So, um, but the, in the other group with the women on the, um, Premarin or the estrogen alone, that continued because that signal of breast cancer wasn't there. Right. So that was completed. And they found out, which is really important because nobody wants to admit this, um, that they, there was a 23% risk reduction of breast cancer in that group. And it, and it held 10 years, and it's been almost 20 years now. That, yeah. that reduction risk is held. Now, mind you, they only received it for six something years, whatever, but um, it, it lowered their risk of breast cancer. Isn't it safe to say that estrogen has never been shown to be uh, put somebody at increased risk for breast cancer? Um, no, I can't say that because um, I can't say that. I think there's the, the nurses study, um, which, which is an, an older study. It was an observational study, though. Mm-hmm. Uh, women who were on uh, the Premarin alone uh, at 15 and 20 years, did show a slightly increased risk of breast cancer, but I want to say it's the garden variety, low risk ductal, mm-hmm. you know, highly ERPR uh, uh, cancer that probably wouldn't wasn't going to kill anybody in an older woman. Right. So, um, so there is probably something, and maybe it's because they had they had all 20 years of um, uh, the conjugated estrogen without progesterone. Right. Um, and was that a, that isn't a bioidentical? It is, correct. It's not okay. a bioidentical. Actually, we should probably define bioidentical. Yes, yes. yes. Um, good idea. <laughs> uh, bioidentical. Um, so <clears throat> the term bioidentical really was coined by Suzanne Summers um, when her book, The Sexy Years, came out. And she had mm-hmm. been on um, bioidentical hormones for a while. Um, and what it basically is, uh, bioidentical basically means like estradiol, human it's a human molecule. Human, it looks like a Same human molecule. molecule. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it can start out as a plant, like a soy or or yam, and then the side groups are clipped so that it looks like a human molecule. It's not truly bioidentical because the term bioidentical would mean that we put the gene in a bacteria or to you know that says make all this estradiol, and it would crank out estradiol, and that would be a bioidentical product. Right. So it's kind of a misnomer. It's really a human identical hormone replacement is probably the best way to put it. But anyway, you use estrogen, or estradiol, sometimes estriol, estrone, or actually we don't use estrone anymore. Testosterone and progesterone are, 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 can be compounded into these hormones. But there are FDA products that are estro, uh, that are bioidentical, right? right. Yeah. So the patches and gels, gels. Mm-hmm. the oral progesterone, those are yeah. all FDA approved bioidentical hormones. Right. The, the figure, the, the names, the, the adjectives, I suppose, uh, uh, that are thrown around are natural. Well, a lot of patients think natural is something that is plant-based. And yes, a lot of these are plant-based, but they're plant, plant-based and then manipulated. Synthesized. Synthesized, mm-hmm. exactly. 
Um, so it's not necessarily natural, but it is the, the other term that's thrown around is compounded as, you know, the other dirty word that's, that's thrown around as compounded because for a long time the pharmaceutical companies were not making anything that was a bioidentical product because it wasn't in their best interest. Um, there, there wasn't any money to be made. Out or you of can't it. patent. They, they can't patent it. Yeah, a natural well, substance. They, they, and the only reason I think that they got into it at all was because they could patent delivery systems. Correct. Which are the patches. Mm-hmm. Patches. And that was cells. great because the transdermal approach is, as we know, we believe, is the safest way yeah. yes. to, to um, we know. administer. Absolutely. We know. Yeah. No. Um, so, you know, the, 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 the natural, the bioidentical, the compounded all need to be understood by the listeners um, as uh, for what they really are. And an estrogen is not really being so much the, the problem child. Um, it, it's more the progestogen that, that was. So thank you. So that was something that needs to be pointed, that was pointed out by the Women's Health Initiative, that oh. it looked like the estrogen really was okay, but the progestin mm. was a problem. Right. And so I think that's... You know, that's actually turned the corner on making estrogen maybe not as bad, not the bad guy. Right. Now they think it's the progestins. And the problem is a lot of people use progesterone. They include that in the progestins. Right. So they think progesterone's bad. So I, I, it's, I think that's not warranted, but that's what people do. Well, it, it but the, the progestins will compete in the body for the progesterone receptor. Well, yeah, but they're not progesterone. They don't no, they're want, not progesterone. Yeah, right. they, they actually block the yeah. use of progesterone, yeah. block, uh, block the yeah. body's efforts of making the rest of the progesterone. So it's doing, they're competing in, in that regard. Um, thank you. Uh, it's, it's really, um, let, let's talk a little bit about the use of um, hormone replacement therapy in patients with breast cancer and the various types of breast cancer, um, basically hormone receptive or not, and what are the dangers or what are, uh, what's, a, what's a reasonable way? The way you described earlier, which is informed consent for patients because they were miserable. Either the medication was making them miserable or they were just miserable um, because of uh, the lack of, HRT, which they had been having previously. Um, when is it okay, or what particular ones do you need to be concerned about? I mean, if a, a breast cancer is is has no estrogen or, or progesterone receptors, is not sensitive to those drugs, is there any problem in giving hormone replacement therapy to them? So. For the people, the women who are diagnosed with, we call it triple negative breast mm-hmm. cancer, yeah. there is, in my opinion, in my experience, absolutely um, no problem. As a matter of fact, I think hormone replacement with the Wiley protocol is very beneficial. I have about mm-hmm. 11 women that I've treated, and all, all those 11 women are alive and well. And I'm going to tell you, two of them didn't even have chemotherapy. Wow. Wow. So uh, there's, and I think when like the Wiley protocol or the, you know, the rhythmic dosing or the, you know, what, you know, even physiological restoration, whatever you want to call it, 
um, it's trying to hit those same um, uh, hormone patterns and trying to make things normal, regulate normal uh, cycling because the, t- the breast tissue cycles like the uterus cycles and all that. So I, I think it's trying to restore some normalcy in the triple negatives, mm-hmm. with people with triple negatives. So um, that to me was shocking. Yeah. I mean, and so I have, I personally have zero, zero concern about something with triple negative yeah. breast cancer. Also, what does that mean though? Triple negative. That's a good question. Thank you. Triple negative. Okay. So when we do a breast cancer evaluation, um, we like if someone had a, a mass, we send it to, um, like radiology to have a biopsy and that biopsy, we have some standard, um, data that we have to obtain. Does this tumor have estrogen receptors? Yes or no, or positive or negative. Do they have progesterone receptors, positive or negative? Do they have androgen receptors, which is a new one, um, positive or negative? There's something called a KI-67, which is a proliferative index. How fast is this tumor growing? And another marker called HER2, which is a protein found in about 20% of breast cancers that um, implies more aggressive disease, and we have lots of treatments for it now, so very treatable. So we have this you know, minimum amount of data that we get. So if the tumor does not express any estrogen, progesterone, um, or HER2 receptors or proteins, we that's considered triple negative. Okay. okay. So, so they should not be affected by right. taking estrogen Estrogens. or progesterone. Yeah. So, yeah, thank you for the clarification. Um, and then if, if a woman has not been getting a period, let's say she gets a diagnosis where you could use with the Wiley protocol... Then she just starts getting a period again. It's like her body picks up where it left off before menopause. It, it may take mm-hmm. a couple cycles, but yes, because okay. you're still getting the hormonal stimulation of the endometrium, the lining mm-hmm. tissue of the uterus, which is what sheds and causes bleeding once a month in a menstrual cycle. And just to take this a little bit further, what's really important about the cycling? I said the breast tissue cycles, mm-hmm. the bone cycles, and it it follows the same rhythm of the hormone pattern. You know, so the body uses its own um, rhythm for many different things in the body. Okay, it's really fascinating. So the cycling part is important, and even the data that's out there for hormone replacement, cycling is better than we'll call it the continuous combined, which is taking another option of hormone replacement of taking both estrogen and progesterone at the same time every day. So the cycling, there's more seems to be a bit better in terms of results for yeah. like osteoporosis, you know, cardiovascular, et cetera. We were talking recently and you said that the body does so much better with estrogen on its own for a while. I mean, that half of the cycle. That really uh, stimulated my thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, and But what do you mean by that? Well, it's just, well, taking the first, Looking at the reproductive cycle, the first two weeks are really estrogen alone. Right. And then there's that day 12, you know, 11, 12 peak where it's just sky high, sky high, just just for a day. And just, you know, normal, just, I'm just giving you some references, like in our lab work here, um, like it's like 350 to 500 is Mm -hmm. like peak ovulatory, right? Well, I had measured my sister's day 12 when she was 40 and it was 700 and she was, that was her normal. (laughs) Mm-hmm. 700 so yeah. um you know nobody would think anything of that right nobody would right. draw it i just drew it because it was day 12 on her and i want to see what it was and yeah there it was 
But the point is, is that day 12 is really, really high, but it, it signals when that spikes up like that, it is like a, it's like a transmitter to tell the rest of the body, hey. There may be a pregnancy coming. There may be. So get ready. <laughs> make testosterone receptors because we want to use the egg we're going to pop. You better make more thyroid receptors because we have to get ready for pregnancy. We need to make, oh, yeah, the right progesterone receptors. Yeah. Not just progesterone receptors, the right ones. And um, we need to make more estrogen receptors. So that's what the day 12 spike does, okay? So that... Um, uh, that's about the, the doing the, the rhythmic dosing, but that first two weeks is all about estrogen mm -hmm. and prepping the body for that. Right. Then there's like there's like the on button and there's the progesterone added the second half, which is I call it the off button or the cleaning the slate mm -hmm. when they do the, the you know the, during that period of time. Yeah. And there's a yin and a yang. So even high doses of estradiol, by the way, on day twelve, it will um, it will uh, it. it which activates P53, okay? Mm -hmm. P53 is activated so you have less cancer problems. Yeah. Right. It's really, it's incredible. So what's your ideal way of replacing hormones for a postmenopausal patient? So I think we have to go back to timing as to what, mm -hmm. what age are we talking about. Let's deal with 50, 50 to 60. 50 to 60. So, um, and the reason why I say age, aging, because if they're closer to menopause, I really think the, if they're perimenopausal or closer to the menopause um, when they started, I do like the rhythmic dosing. I think mm -hmm. that is really beneficial. Um, but of course it goes back to having the conversation with the person because they're going to say, there's no way in hell that I'm going to have another period in my right. life. Right. Sorry. Exactly. Sorry. <laughs> and then I said, okay, well then, you know, you, we, you can only get so far and maybe your health or if you just want to do symptom management, it doesn't take very much estrogen to cover a hot flush. No, it doesn't. So mm -hmm. if that's what you're looking at, then you know that's what... But what, And one other interesting thing to me that, that uh, I've discovered th through a lot of the procedures that we have now, for uh, genital urinary syndrome and menopause, got a name in 2014, been there for millennia before that, uh, but was a combination of a number of symptoms of urinary frequency, nocturia, being at, having to get up out of bed and pee at night, not being able to go and, you know, uh, uh, sit through a movie or have more than a two-hour car ride. This, um, the, and then, of course, incontinence, whether it's uh, stress incontinence when a woman is leaking urine when she coughs or sneezes as opposed to just leaking because they have urgency and they can't hold it. Um, those patients... We, we have since 2016 these new treatments of vaginal rejuvenation, which work like any other um, rejuvenation procedure on the body. A little bit of damage by a laser or radio frequency, electro, uh, electricity and heat, um, starting a healing process with the increased blood supply, increased collagen uh, being beneficial. Those patients do better with when patients are on estrogen. But the, the levels that we get to with the systemic estrogen, uh, maybe 70 picograms, 100 picograms, something like that, um, that's often not enough for the vagina. And they need a boost in the vagina, even though it may be 1% of the systemic dose, just you know, micrograms. It's, um, that's, I found that that's necessary as well. So the, the vagina itself really bring it back to my specialty. <laughs> uh, 
um, really needs that extra boost. And uh, it's and again, we run into insurance companies then who only want to use Premarin cream. So, but but what you're telling me is that maybe Premarin isn't so bad after all. Well, at least orally in the study. Yeah. The, but right. But see, this is where compounding. If people don't understand the definition of compounding, compounding right. is basically a specialty, a pharmacy that will make the product in their right. in their own lab. Yeah. And so it's you know it's kind of like cooking, and you know, I'd like to have one order of you know, <laughs> you know, uh, estradiol cream for the vagina, please. They can do it for much less than what the um, than than what we pay for, yeah. for the, to the drug company. Right, right, absolutely. And so, so I, I have I have lots of patients doing. Yeah, that. So, so we have ways around it. Yeah. Of course, I want you to know that the FDA is trying to get rid of the yes. compounding pharmacies, absolutely. right? Absolutely. So because they're competing with drug right. companies, right? So please, everybody, don't Every, let that all happen. the listeners out there. Yes. Yes. Um, we have to. Compounding save. pharmacies are necessary. Absolutely, it's necessary. But oh, they, they, there's no testo- there's no FDA approved testosterone replacement for women. None. But, right. So yeah, important. And if we're using it as a compounded, it's a controlled drug, correct. which is just ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, correct. That yeah, we have a lot of women abusing testosterone. <laughs> <laughs> so it's uh, anyway, it's nuts. That would be that would be my one political charge. I would do go to Congress and say, you know, just give up owning uh, testosterone and growth hormone. They don't. You guys don't need to be bothered with that. Yeah, right. Leave it to the doctors. It's, it's silly. <laughs> Under congressional control. Yes, absolutely. Um, I think I'm almost out of questions for you. Not not quite. I have one more, but uh, Karen, do you have any anything else you want to add or? Um, just to say, well, I like, actually have two things. Okay, three well, things. <laughs> we have patients that um, we're dealing with in the office that they they've had a breast cancer diagnosis, and they're more upset about stopping their hormones. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. Then they are about the diagnosis. And the panic that comes through with that diagnosis, even for me, when I see those come through the office, it's very, you know, I'm very sensitive and upset about it. And these are patients we've been seeing for a long time. Um, And then, you know, they're very frantic about the hormones and what, what to do. What do I do? You know, I think I'd rather um, just stay on my hormone replacement therapy and have a shorter life. I mean, that's... Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. You I've know? got lots of patients like that. Yeah. That I, I want my quality of life. I don't want that to change. So, I mean, it's just, it's fascinating to me that um, that we do, or we women do think they have to choose one or the other. Well, they sort of, they do have to choose because if they're in the oncology world, Right with a, if they're in the oncology world with a relapse, they do have to choose because they will be told to stop their hormones right. if they have an estrogen receptor positive tumor. Yeah, um, and that's the <clears throat> based on the theory that the estrogen fuels that growth. So, um, and the dirty little secret is is like that you know it's not that the estrogen that that tumor was always there. So people think oh the cancer went away and came back. Right. That whole concept. No, right. the cancer just never left. Yeah. And right. This, so um, 
you know, so they, and that's the part of the counseling that I do. You know, even 30, 30% of all stage one cancers uh, will relapse in 10 years. Yeah. So wow. we know that even at the time of diagnosis, they're going to have some sort of um, disease spread. Anyway, that's part of the informed consent that I have. And you're right. A lot of women don't want to stop their hormones. They're freaked out about it because they're living well and they know what it's like to live without it. Right. And I think they're, we're back to, these are grown up women. They can, you know, have a choice on they how they want to. make wanna, a decision for themselves. <laughs> yes. They should right. get the information and make you know, a decision. Yeah, it, it's that that whole idea of informed consent. I think is is um, really interesting because not just in the the hormone replacement therapy is one arena that it comes up, but patients. I I have I've been criticized by colleagues in the past because I did a myomectomy on a patient. I removed fibroid tumors from the uterus because she didn't want to have a hysterectomy. She was, let's say, 50. Um, and, and I was criticized for not insisting that patient have a hysterectomy. Oh, I'm sorry. And, and it's just, I mean, the, the, the um, ignoring what a patient wants is, or, or what their personal opinion, their personal preference is, is malpractice in my opinion it's just wrong well that person would have found a doctor who would have done it somewhere because they had a belief mm-hmm. about they really wanted to keep their yeah, uterus right. and um it was super important to them on a mental emotional or other Absolutely. level yeah and so you i know i i totally understand where you're coming from that's that's compassion right yeah. and it's uh, the patients are not listened to very much yeah. and i think that's what uh um you said when when uh, when we've talked previously that you you listen to patients you you pay attention to you want their side of the story it's not just one way that's going to work that we have to go on the po- the particular protocol i like your your answer to one of our questions of you're the person who and you said you're accused of having add <laughs> <laughs> because you keep going with things and you are um you know, wanting to get to the to the answer, but how does that affect your household? That type of the way <laughs> my you house, are. My, yeah, my house is a mess. <laughs> so, so they're right. <laughs> well, no, I do this thing where I think I drive everyone in my house crazy because I'm similar in that I have to be busy all the time, and I'm just that person that has to be. Bu- I don't know why. It's probably some underlying anxiety that's never been diagnosed who knows but just the way i am but i think it drives everyone crazy well, but i'm just curious yeah. for me it's curiosity it's mm-hmm. like oh it's like i'm the why person mm-hmm. and i want to know why I want, and so that leads me down to a bunch of different rabbit holes because of you know just asking those questions right so um you know i have my i've had my you know hands in a lot of different things because of the why mm-hmm. and so um I totally relate to that. And it's exciting, you know, um, new information and how does it relate? How do, you know, things relate? I, that, that's, I try to relate or connect dots. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's really um, important for me because things are very connected, more connected, I think, than medicine really appreciates. Yes, absolutely. So. Um, are you familiar with Bone School? You heard of that? Mm-mm. Um, 
This is a, an invention that uh, came from UCSB. And it was one of the um, uh, professors there that was looking at bone health. And, uh, and I, I'm reminded of this because of your, the rhythms of bone growth. And uh, this person was looking for a better way to assess bone damage or bone weakness. And um, so he developed a, he talked to orthopedic surgeons and said, how do you assess bone? Before you put a screw in it or a plate in it to repair the bone, um, how do you assess it? And he said, well, I bang on it. I tap on it. What is this? Is this a solid piece of wood or not? And uh, so he realized that that wasn't really clinically uh, appropriate to operate on every patient <laughs> to see how good their bones were, but developed this uh, procedure that basically under local anesthesia in the office, a 10-minute procedure of, of hitting the bone with a probe and measuring the hardness of the bone. And that is now an FDA-approved test. Um, it's only available, to my knowledge, in Santa Barbara and in the Netherlands. Uh, it is being introduced in the Mayo Clinic currently. But we've been doing it for uh, a year and a half or so uh, in the office, and it's, it's essentially painless. It takes The test itself takes about 15 seconds, and we get a result right away. And we, because of the data that's been uh, created by all of the studies that have been done, all of the people that have been using it, uh, we're getting more and more information as to what we'll be able to just put it on a, a instead of on a scale of zero to 100 of how hard this bone is, uh, we're now being able to look at this more precisely and see, okay, what is the impact that this bone needs to have to make it fracture? So is this abnormal? Is this okay for a certain patient or other? Anyway, it's something that we're doing right now, and it's um, I think it's fascinating. It is fascinating. Can so. I ask a question? What bone do you use? Tibia. Of course. Okay. It's the only one that's close enough <laughs> to the surface. Under the skin. <laughs> yeah. And then um, do they correlate bone density with this at all? Well, we're doing that. I mean, almost every patient I'm doing, I have some other bone, uh, I have a bone density score as well. But And usually if I have patients that um, have a have a concerning bone density, then I will really twist their arm to to do this test because I think this is more reliable. But but it's, at the moment, it's still data, data gathering. Got it. And can you tell a difference of women who are on like hormone replacement versus versus the other um, bisphosphonates? Um, I we don't have any. We have that data in that we know which patients are on medication and which are not. Um, I've had a few patients who I've tested six months after one who've been put on hormone replacement therapy or some physical therapy program of weight-bearing and seeing an improvement. Because the, the nice thing about this test, it's very sensitive, it's reproducible, and it's sensitive. And um, so it's exciting to be involved with that. We, I talked to the company way back when, before COVID occurred, and when they were still trying to get FDA approval. And then... Uh, after COVID was done, it was available, so we've been doing that. So Wonderful. it's been really good. Cool. And okay, one last thing. You're a dancer. <laughs> Shh. <laughs> <laughs> no, I love this about I love this fun fact about you. Yes, I've been dancing for I would have never guessed this in my life. I started uh, dancing performing about ten years ago. Mm-hmm. 
um, just what type of dance? Oh my gosh, I dance with a little uh, performance group. Um, uh, you know, dance with dance with Haru, but he's he was a UCSB student, a senior, and he was doing aerobics classes um, when he was um, in his senior year, and it was just his classes were so fun, and he was himself as a professional dancer. Mm-hmm. So he started his own group here, and a lot of it just were like middle-aged women, and we just had a lot of fun. It was like it became like my my playtime with my friends who get dressed up and do fun things. Um, I think because as a as a kid myself, I mean, I went to high school, college, and right into medical school. I mean, I just worked my butt off, right? And mm-hmm. um, you know, then in my didn't didn't play very much. Didn't play very much, and then here in my fifties, it's been one of the most wonderful things uh, that that has happened to me. That's fantastic. So, yeah. Julie, thank you very much for being on the podcast. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Welcome. You can always DM the Vagina Doctor Instagram with any questions or topics you'd like to learn more about or email us. See you in the next episode. The Vagina Doctor Podcast. It all starts here.